Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, welcome everyone to Agape Night, and uh, thanks for coming out uh, tonight. And uh, I want to share with you tonight uh, from John's Gospel, uh, chapter 13. And I want to share with you during these Agape Nights through uh, John chapter 13 through 17, which is one of the most intimate passages in all of Scripture. When you read the synoptic gospels, the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they have very many similarities. Uh, You can follow a similar timeline in each, a lot of the similar teachings from Jesus, uh, miracles of Jesus. Uh, The trajectory of his life as recorded in those synoptic gospels is similar. Uh, But John's gospel is different. And one of the ways that John's gospel is different is that even though John records uh, about the same amount of words and teachings for his disciples as Matthew, Mark, and Luke record in each of their gospels, uh, John saves all of the words of Jesus or most of those personal teachings for his disciples to the very end of his gospel, on the night before Jesus was betrayed. Uh, Chapter 14 or 13 through 17 have often been called Jesus's farewell address. Uh, If you read through the Old Testament, there are major characters who have a speech something like this before they die. Uh, You might think of Jacob, whose name was changed by God to Israel. Uh, Before he died, he gathered his sons and he blessed each one of them and pronounced prophecies over each one of their lives. Uh, You might think of David when he died and was handing the kingdom on to his son Solomon. There are multiple chapters of his directions and speech for how they should conduct themselves and how Solomon should conduct himself as the new king after he was gone. Or there's the story of Joshua. My youngest daughter, June, and I just read this the other day. We concluded a study through the book of Joshua together, and we came to those final chapters where Joshua, an aged man who'd led the people of Israel into the promised land, he's getting ready to die, and he declares to the people who God is and what God has done, and then he says to them, in effect, the choice is yours. You can either serve him or you can serve the gods of the nations around you, but as for, you remember this line, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here in the New Testament, Jesus is giving a similar addressed to his disciples right before his death. In fact, we're not going to read all of it, but at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus is conscious of where he has come from, what he is going to do, and where he is going after he does it. 
Uh, He's conscious that he's come from the Father, that he's come from glory, that he's come from eternity. He's conscious that he's about to suffer and die the agony of the cross. And he's also conscious that after all of it is said and done, he will return to the glory that he had with his father before he came. And with that consciousness, John tells us at the beginning of this chapter that Jesus then washed the feet of his disciples. It was the task of the lowest slave in a household, the most menial task. Jesus began washing the feet of his disciples. And of course, you know that Peter eventually objected. Jesus, how can you wash my feet? I've always thought, what, I've always wondered what the other disciples were thinking when Peter said that, you know, like it's, it's this super spiritual guy, like Lord, I don't, the, all these other guys apparently are so arrogant as to allow you to wash their feet, but not me, Lord. And Jesus then explains to him, no, this is, I, I need to do this to you. You're, you're clean, but not all of you is clean. And so I need to wash your feet. And I want to do this to you so that you will see the example that I have set for you, that if I, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. It was his way of saying to his disciples, not specifically wash each other's feet. We're not gonna do that tonight but to serve each other. That was the practical, important, menial task that needed to be accomplished in that moment and no one else was willing to do it but Jesus and he was trying to set an example for all of us in the future. Now a major example of a farewell address in the Bible and we're gonna read the beginning of it tonight But a major example of a farewell address in the Bible comes in the form of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, When Moses had led the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, led them through the Red Sea, led them into the wilderness, and then had successfully overseen them for a period of 40 years in the wilderness, before he died, he spoke to them the words of Deuteronomy. It's a long book, it's a long farewell address. It was Moses' way of saying, we have been set free, we are now a new people, and here is the code of conduct that I want to leave with you before I die. The same thing is happening in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Jesus has made a way, he knows by the cross that he's going to be pinned upon the very next day for us to be set free, to become a new people, and now he wants to tell his disciples, and this is what life in my kingdom looks like. This is how I want you to operate. This is how I want you to live. Now, of course, we know that Jesus' farewell address was different from Moses's, different from Jacob's, different from David's, different from Joshua's because Jesus did not permanently leave. He rose from the dead, but still he was giving us a code of conduct for the way that we should conduct ourselves and should expect to live until he comes back for us. 
All right, so let's read our passage together tonight from John chapter 13, verse 31 through 38. It says, when he had gone out, and that's Judas. So when Judas left, this kicks off Jesus pouring out his heart. There's just the, uh, the, the, the moment changes, the mood relaxes. Judas is gone, Jesus can now unlock his heart for his true disciples. Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment, verse 34, I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the beginning, like I said, of Jesus's farewell address to his disciples. If you have a red letter Bible, you can pay, uh, flip through the next couple of pages and you'll just see that it's all Jesus speaking with his disciples. Uh, one question that scholars like to geek out about is where did this uh, discourse or this chat take place? Where did it happen? Um, and the reason that they talk about it so much is because in the middle of the record, it says in chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus has this thing at the very end of chapter 14 where he says, rise, let us go from here. And so a lot of people think, okay, so at that point, they were, they were there in the upper room taking communion to eating the Last Supper, and then Jesus speaks to them, and then he says, let's get up and let's go. But then in chapter 18, when he's done praying and he's done talking, it says that when Jesus had spoken these words, chapter 18, verse one, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. So people are confused. When did they actually leave? You know, in the middle of Jesus' teaching or at the end of his teaching, when did they actually leave? And uh, I think I can help the scholars out with this problem. Uh, if they had grown up in my family, they would have known that on my mom's side of the family, when all my aunts would get together and we'd be hanging out, when they would say, let's go get frozen yogurt, what that meant was that in two hours, we would actually leave and go get frozen yogurt. You know, it just took a long time for this group of people to finally get the, the energy and the inertia to actually go. And I think that's what's happening here. Jesus is in this moment with his disciples about halfway through his teaching. He says, let's go, and they don't actually go for a couple more chapters. That's my theory, at least. Okay, so, so why, why do I wanna look at this text tonight, and why do I wanna look at this text during our agape nights together. 
Well, one is, is that these words from Jesus are some of the best passages of scripture I can think of to prepare us for the age that we're in and the age to come. Um, they're words that are very candid. They're words that express, um, maybe the right word are the, is the, the grim realities of what they were going to face. Jesus talks a lot in this passage about things like the hatred of the world or persecution that they might endure. It's, it's a sobering message in one sense. Uh, but it's not just sobering in that Jesus is like, there is nothing but doom that is coming. It's also a parental message because he's trying to put his people together. He's like, look, I, I'm the glue. I brought you all together. You guys are all very different. We got zealots and fishermen and tax collectors and educated and uneducated. We got all these different guys and I'm about to leave and you better love one another because the age that's coming, you're gonna really need each other. So I think one reason I wanna look at this passage is because of the preparatory thing that it can do in each one of us for the times that we're in. But I think another reason is because, well, you know, agape nights, that's the word love. I'm sorry if you came here tonight and you thought, I don't know why they called it agape night. I don't know what that is, but agape, the Greek word for love, it's here in the passage that we just read tonight, uh, speaking of a selfless kind of love that the Christians embraced because it, it, it mimicked Jesus and the sacrificial love that he displayed for us. Love is the all-important fruit of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, and I believe that this is a major need in our lives, even as we see in the text tonight. So I think that's another reason why I wanna look at this whole teaching from Jesus because he hits on that theme over and over again throughout these four chapters. You must love one another. I think another reason though is because all throughout the teaching that Jesus is going to give, multiple times he talks about the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. The presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of it is unique to the disciples. For instance, we're going to cover some passages which seem to indicate that Jesus is saying to his disciples, a moment is coming where the Spirit of God is going to bring into your remembrance everything that I did, everything that I said, and you are gonna record it. You guys are gonna write it down. Uh, that's not our fate, that's not what we receive from the Holy Spirit. But there are plenty of things throughout the passage that are what we want and are applicable to us about the present day ministry of the Spirit of God. In fact, there's even one point in Jesus' teaching in chapter 16 where he declares that it is actually better for him to depart because with his ascension came the descension of the Holy Spirit of God, and that if he didn't depart, the Spirit would never come. And so we're going to think about, as we move through this passage this year, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I think the reason why that's important to me is because I think that people are thirsty 
for not drummed up enthusiasm or false experiences that get the God label. But I think we're a people who want to actually experience the power of God working in our lives. We, we want the Holy Spirit to minister to us. We, we want the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And personally, I feel like we are a church that is well positioned to be able to explore who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does because uh, we're on one hand, not on the extreme that is just spirit every day, all day, that's all we can ever talk about or think about and we're not grounded in the truth. But on the other hand, even though we're a biblical church and we love to exposit scripture and study scripture and all of that, we believe in the present day, or at least I do, I don't know about you, but I believe in the present day gifting and operation of the Holy Spirit. And so I believe that we can, we're, we're well positioned to be able to think about what the Spirit is doing. Okay, but another reason why I wanna look at this passage or why we even wanna have these nights in the first place, and I think I already mentioned this in inviting you to Agape Nights is because, and this is not the strongest one for me, but it seems like it, when you read of the church in the New Testament era, they, they, they met in big gatherings like, like we do on the weekend, like we do on Sunday. And then they met from house to house in smaller kind of settings like we do in life groups or in growth groups. But there also are hints and indications that they had this third meeting where the core of the church would come out and they would eat food together and they would pray together and they would eat at the Lord's table together and they would wait on the Lord together. And I think it's that meeting that I'd like to explore a little bit together with you this year. But here's my biggest reason for wanting to have these agape nights. I don't know if you noticed, but the last you know, three or so years have been a tumultuous time here on planet Earth. And with that tumult has come lots of churn in local churches throughout the world. And what I mean by that is people reshuffling. I think about a third of American churches are no longer going to church. Um, but lots of people just made a decision well, I, I'm gonna keep going to church, but I'm gonna go to a different church for whatever reason. And you know, Calvary Monterey, we're a great church, but we're no exception to uh, that practice that many have come into. Partly, I think, because um, we're not very extreme in some of the ways that people would like us to be extreme in either direction. Uh, that's, that's been a great way to build a huge congregation over the last three years. Just be extreme in one direction or the other and you're gonna have people rushing to you. Um, so we've seen turnover, we've seen change. We, we still have this core of people who have remained faithful and have been here for many years. But a lot of us are looking around going, but there's like these newer people who they seem to really love the Lord they, they seem to really be about it. They, they love this church. They're here, but they're just newer, and we want to have them be part of the core of this church. And my hope is, is that this 
little meeting can kind of help expedite that process for some of you. So that's my heart. That's why I'm thinking this way. Now in this text that we looked at tonight, and I'm just going to talk for a few more minutes and then we'll wait on the Lord together. But in this text that we looked at tonight, um, Jesus gives what he calls a new commandment. And he says, you need to love one another. Now, what I want to say about that at, off the top is that it, it's, not like what, it's not like what Jesus is saying is, you know, you, you've read the Old Testament, and there's no love in the Old Testament. And so I'm coming, and I bring in a new commandment. We're going to actually think about loving people now. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. You know, when they came to Jesus and they said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like it, you should love your neighbor as yourself. He was quoting from the Old Testament when he said those things. Okay, so the the Old Testament talked about love. So why is this a new commandment? The reason it's a new commandment is because Jesus said it this way. He said, in the way that I've loved you, you should love one another. That was the new feature, that sacrificial laying down your life element of love. And that's the first thing I want you to see is the foundation of the love that Jesus implores us to adopt. His cross, the gospel, is the foundation of that love. In fact, that's how he begins the whole passage. He talks about a glory that was about to come. And I I know when you read through those first couple of verses, you might have thought to yourself when he's talking about glory, that he's talking about something in the distant future, the second coming, you know, returning visibly, you know, all of that kind of stuff, the future glory. But that's not what he's talking about in this passage. That's a word that is used about Jesus' second coming. But in this passage, the word glory that he uses five times, he's talking about what's going to happen when he suffers and dies on the cross. That God is gonna be glorified, that Jesus is gonna be glorified by the Father while he's on the cross. That will be the glorious moment. He's holding out the glory of the cross. D.A. Carson said it this way, John makes it clear that the supreme moment of divine disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory was in the shame of the cross. And not only was Jesus glorified on the cross, but he's very clear, God the Father is going to be glorified while I'm on the cross. The power of God being displayed upon the cross. Now partly the power of God over the schemes of man. We need to kill this figure or the schemes of Satan. We need to kill this figure. But his very death was the thing that defeated the schemes of man and the power of the devil. But the glory of God is also found in the the holiness of God. You see it in the cross. How holy is God so holy that only the blood of his only begotten son can wash away our sins and make us acceptable in his sight. The justice of God is found there. Every sin must be dealt with. And the love of God is found there because he poured out himself, his own blood for us. All right, so the foundation of the love that Jesus is holding out to us to have for one another, we have to remember it. It is the love of Christ. It's the foundational element. In fact, in the whole interchange that Jesus had with Peter, uh, you might have noticed it there. When, you know, Peter objects. He's like, hey, where are you going? 
Uh, well, you know, you can't go with me. Well, Lord, I'll never leave you. I'll, I'll die for you. And Jesus kind of like really highlights that. He kind of goes after that comment. And I, by the way, I don't think we should beat up on Peter too bad. All the other gospels say that everybody else said the same thing. All the other disciples were like, yeah, that's right. We'll die with you and for you too. Uh, and Jesus, you know, went on to tell Peter, you know, yeah, you're going to deny me tonight before the rooster crows twice. But before he said that, he said, are you going to die for me? You know, the thing is, uh, Peter did die for Jesus. Uh, it didn't happen during this account, but 30 years later, he died for the Lord. In fact, at the close of the Gospel of John, there's this moment where Jesus predicts to Peter in front of everybody, a moment is coming where they're gonna spread your arms and they're gonna carry you where you do not wish. And John gives a little editorial note and said this he said concerning the manner in which Peter was going to die. Um, Peter would die for Jesus. The difference between Peter here and Peter in three decades is that the cross had so saturated Peter's heart by that time that it's like there's nothing that he would not do for his Lord. That was the major difference. I mean, the spirit became into his life and empowered him, but as the years went by, the spirit was drilling down into Peter's heart, the foundational love of the, uh, of the cross for him uh, as manifested in the cross. So that's the foundation is the cross. Now, the importance of love is the next thing I wanna to talk to you about. You know, Jesus here, he basically tells us this love that I want you to have, this is the thing that needs to mark your new community that you're entering into. Uh, he says in verse 35, by, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. This love was supposed to be the, the, the emblem of this new community that Jesus was launching. Uh, listen to what Peter said when he wrote about this in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is what he describes the church as. He says, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received it. And then he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I think that Peter had these words from Jesus ringing in his ears when he wrote that. Jesus said, they are gonna know that you're my disciples based on your love for one another. And Peter says, there's a certain way that we live and operate. We're a, we're a royal priesthood proclaiming who God is to the world in which we live. And we need to make sure that our conduct is honorable so that when they're watching us, there's a reputation, the savor of Christ, to borrow the words from Paul the Apostle to the Corinthian church. The savor of Christ, the aroma of Christ coming out of our lives. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is the aroma 
that needs to be wafting out of your community. Love for one another. Uh, the reason that love is so important is because it marks our community and I believe that we are a community that is designed to withstand and endure challenge because of that love. We've got this new commandment all throughout this passage. We'll see that we're, we're exiles, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims. So love is important. Okay, I, I wanna wrap this up though by talking for a second about how to love one another. Does this passage say anything about it? You know, you can kind of just read it and you know, if you're a person that likes to underline or highlight in your Bible, you might have already underlined this at some point in your uh, reading of scripture. Oh yeah, that's a great one. I, that Jesus, he's always got the greatest little statements. I really like that one and I love it so much, I'm gonna underline it and uh, close it, <laughs> you know. no. How do we actually do this? Is it just a feeling that we have? No, it's an action. Jesus laid down his life. So how can we love one another? Well, a couple of suggestions I think that the text gives to us. The first one is that if we really want to love one another, then I do think we have to be a people who dive into and explore the glories of the cross of Christ. It's just impossible to be a person who just says to yourself, you know, I wanna be a people person, I wanna be a loving person. I just, I just wanna be so other-centered and I'm just going to decide to do so. That will only get you so far. But when you dive into the cavernous expanses of the glory of the love of God for you as revealed in the cross of Christ, it produces this thing in you where you realize that's how he loved me, that's how he loved the people that are next to me, and so I want to love in the way that he loved. And Paul said it this way, he said the love of Christ compels us. It's the main engine. It's not the only thing that we do, but I'm just trying to say that it's impossible to be a person who loves in the way that Christ wants us to love if we have a light touch with the, the gospel, with what Christ has done. We've got to explore it. We've got to be about it. The second thing, though, that I would say is we have to rely on God's enabling power if we are going to love this way, Right? We need God to energize us. We need God to help us. I mean, perhaps Peter would be a good example of this. He, in his own energy, could not love in the way that he professed that he would love. But then when the Spirit came into his life and he became dependent upon the Spirit of God, he was enabled to love in ways that he could not love previously. There was a boldness and a courage that came upon him because of the presence of the Spirit. He, he did away with a prideful self-reliance and he began to have a humble dependence upon the Spirit of God. And that will be our story as well. We've got to lean into and trust the enabling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. When I was 18 years old and started walking with the Lord, one of my first real experiences of, of um, interacting with the Lord 
was about three or four months into, you know, just trying to figure out how to, how to do this thing called Christianity. And uh, somebody shared with me about the Holy Spirit and I began learning about the Holy Spirit a little bit more and I began asking God to, to help me. You know, God, I, I, I don't know what you have for me. I don't know if there's any gifts that you wanna give to me. I don't know if there's any, any uh, you know, strength or, or ability that you wanna give to me, but you know, whatever you wanna do, I, I want that. I want you to be working and moving in and through my life. And one of the first things I began noticing was that my attitude began to change about believers that were around me. There began to grow a love for them that was not there previously. It wasn't even like in germination. It was just not there. It was not existent. But the Spirit, as I leaned upon him, as I was dependent upon him, began to shape me, reshape me in a different mold. We've got to have the Spirit to help us to love. Another thing I'd say about loving one another is really the only way to actually love one another is by at least in some, to some degree pressing into the Christian community. I mean, you just have to do that. I mean, you can, you can kind of like, I guess a person could say to themselves, you know, I really loved it when the pandemic hit and churches started really getting good at putting their services online and I am gonna go to church in my living room until the day that Jesus comes back. That's what I'm gonna do. I suppose you could say like, that's my, that's my church service and I got my dog on the couch with me and I got some, you know, popcorn and I just kind of hang and I just sit here and man, those people on that screen, I love them. I just love them so much. I love them. <laughs> I suppose you could do that, but that's not true real love. Real Christian love presses into the hard contours of the Christian family. All our imperfections, our brokenness, our flaws, it presses in, it says, I need to be part of this community. It does what Acts 2.42 says about the early church. They devoted themselves, it says, every day to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayers. There was just this spirit of, we don't know what's happening here, but we need to be near each other. I think another way, though, to love one another is just by practically helping each other. Sometimes it's not a big mystery. There's just things that we can do to lighten the load in each other's lives. Did you know that there's a gift of the Holy Spirit called the gift of helps? You know, when you talk to people about the gifts of the Spirit, they want all the big, fantastic ones, you know? Like, we have these songs, like, I don't really like them, but it's like, I'm a miracle maker, you know? Just all these, like, I'm gonna do miracles, you know? Like, how about you help somebody? <laughs> That'd be a super helpful miracle. <laughs> you know, this thing needs to be clean. I need a ride to the airport. I need someone to watch my dog. You know, like that's just helpful Christian stuff. And I'm not saying tonight, uh, you know, you could help people if you have the gift of helps. But, you know, if you don't have the gift of helps, you don't need to ever help anybody. I'm not trying to say that. But I just think it's fascinating. The Spirit of God, that's one way that he will uniquely gift a person 
is with a gift of helps? Any of you who have someone like this in your life, you know how valuable they are. Right, so we can just practically aid each other in life. Another way that we can love each other is with, by giving counsel and guidance to each other. Uh, by giving counsel and guidance to each other. I talked to the men this last Saturday at our men's conference. I taught a message I'd, I'd never uh, given before on Titus 2, verse 2. I'd never preached on just that verse. It's about the older men, the older men and the way that they're to be in the body of Christ. But one thing older, godly, mature men can do is give counsel and guidance. One thing any mature believer can do is give counsel and guidance. One thing any believer with a Bible in their hand can do to some degree or another is give counsel and guidance. And that can be so helpful. That can be so uh, loving. I think another way to be loving is to just be available. To be available, to be around. I have no idea when I walk onto the church campus, I have no idea what's gonna happen. I have no idea what conversations I'm gonna get into, what problems might come up, what prayers people might need, what kind of help someone might need. I have no idea. But what I've discovered is that over the you know, 20 plus years that I've just keep coming to the church campus and just like standing in the lobby, just being around, because I'm there, I can, I can help. And when you're available, when you're, when you're around, you know, God will use your life. And then lastly, a way to love that I would encourage you in tonight is to love others by encouraging others. Encouraging others. I'd like to close with this verse from 1 Peter, or excuse me, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul's... Uh, was in a section here where he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he said, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. I'm going to invite the band to come up right now, but as you're thinking about those three words, how many of you would love from time to time to have someone else upbuild you? Isn't that one of those beautiful words? How many of you would love to have someone else in your life from time to time encourage you? Hey, is there ever a moment in any of your lives where you're like, you know what, I'm just tapped out on the encouragement thing. Uh, that what I need are some voices of discouragement. No, we're, we, we, we could always use more. And how often we go through periods where what we could really use is consolation, comfort. You know, a comforting word, a comforting presence. Uh, but what Paul says is Christians should desire the Spirit's help and gifting to be able to do that. Because have you ever had the experience where maybe you have tried or someone else has tried on you to give you a comfort or an encouragement or to upbuild you without the help of the Holy Spirit and it just hasn't gone well? 
That's why Paul's saying, let's desire the Holy Spirit's help so that we could do this in each other's life, so that we could love one another. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.